0: Just wash
1: it. Wash it away. It will you. Ladies and gentlemen, cops and criminals, welcome to the Movie Morgue, the Movie Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host Silvio Emery,
0: and I'm Annie Neller.
1: And today, we're going to be taking our face off. Our face off. Yes, we are covering Face Off, the 1997 John Woo action-shooting Nicolas Cage John Travolta vehicle. Uh, so that's going to be a fun one. Uh, that's
0: a great way to describe it. I Just a pastiche of words.
1: Yes. Uh, content warning for those who might want to check out the film for the podcast. Uh, there's a lot of surgical imagery in this one. Uh, and uh, content warning for the podcast is we're going to be talking about Nicolas Cage. <laughs> 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 okay. Um... Yeah. (laughs) So, Face Off uh, came in 1997. Let's talk a little bit of context here on what this film is. And this is kind of early Cage, not-so-early Travolta. Am I right about that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Not-so-early Travolta. Um, Travolta has been kind of on the scene for a while. He had Broken Arrow, which came out prior to this, which was kind of a big hit for him. Cage had been in Moonstruck in, I think, 1989, but was still kind of developing his reputation as an action movie star. So, kind of a risk, but sort of not in casting these two guys. And um, Travolta and Cage were not the first two choices for these roles, apparently, Um, but... They were John Woo's first choices. I believe the first choices that the studio wanted, one at least, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. So imagine that.
1: Yeah, because the thing is, uh, I'm looking at Cage's IMDb real fast, and before this film, I only really recognized Con Air, which is the same year, The Rock, which is the year before, and then a whole bunch of kind of nothings, I mean, I'm not going to call them nothings, but a bunch of films I've not seen or heard of, Until you get to, like, 1988 with Vampire's Kiss and 1987 with Raising Arizona. But the rest of it, like, it seemed like there was a long period where he was not getting, you know, big banner roles.
0: Yeah, and I think, too, like, historically, those movies are probably... Like, they were a little bit more popular during the 80s and 90s than they are now, and that's partly why there is this perception that this is just when he's coming into his own. Um, He'd kind of been like I said, building his reputation throughout the late 80s and early 90s. And that kind of culminates in The Rock. But Face Off is kind of his piece de resistance.
1: Well, you guys all know how we love The Rock. Um, So this is kind of an interesting thing in a lot of ways. Particularly, this is John Mu's third Hollywood film. Yeah. Uh, Broken Arrow being more military fiction. And the other one being a Jean-Claude Van Damme vehicle that I'm not really familiar with and I forgot this was a John Woo film I really did until did I for- saw uh, honestly you- I, I I I saw this actually let's talk about where Wait, did we've you seen forget this before that
0: this was a John Woo movie while you were watching it because I don't know you I can f- forget this is a John Woo movie while I
1: watching. was re- I, I found out in the first fight scene
0: so- oh okay. <laughs> okay 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 cool
1: um, but let's actually talk about when we've seen this real fast. Yeah. Just what our personal connection is to the film before we get too far into it.
0: I've seen this on TV at some point. It was edited. I've never seen the full movie of Face Off. I've only ever seen it in clips that were like heavily edited for cable. How did you see this?
1: Uh, so this film, like many others, uh, was introduced to me actually by Eric. Uh, my roommate in college uh, because like I said his dad had a big dvd collection a lot of this kind of like late 90s gimmick action kind of affair okay
0: that's and legit. so
1: this was kind of in that like memetic things like that, that that's why I do the gag yo know, I want his face off it's one of those moments that's just so weird that you repeat it and it's just funny and so this is kind of like a pre-internet meme almost and you know I watched it at his house they had like a big like I want to say, like, 45-inch TV or some shit like that. It was crazy. Okay. They had a great that's home theater set up.
0: That's pretty good.
1: So, yeah. No, Watch a lot of DVDs over there. And this is one, and I really enjoyed it. And that was about, I'd say it was probably, like, 2009, 2010, something like that.
0: Okay. And that was the first time you saw it was in the 2000s?
1: Yeah, and I don't think I've actually seen the film completely since then. I just know, you know, it's face-off. There's the face-swapping mm-hmm. gimmick and you can refer to this movie a lot by shorthand Uh, and it it, it's very evocative because the premise is so weird
0: yeah it's a really odd premise and we can can kind of like continue talking about that throughout our discussion today about it because it is weird somehow this movie works yeah and I don't know how
1: (laughs) So let's actually review this film. Let's say, what, what yeah. is this movie? Is it worth watching? Is it something that people are going to enjoy? And is it a good movie?
0: Mm, that's, that is the question, I think. Um, so personally, I think this is a movie that people should watch. And I've said before that I think there are a lot of movies out there that people should be seeing. Don't restrict yourself. That being said, um, I don't think it's particularly good. I think there are a few sequences in it that are good. And I think at times there's also some very problematic and kind of damaging messaging in it, which you and I have talked about a tiny bit in terms of rape culture. So, um, we can kind of come back to that later. I don't know what grade I would give this movie. Like I'm struggling with that. Like it, It's very firmly within this kind of, like, C, B, like, type of film. But I don't know if it was completely to my liking. And yet, it seemed like it was executed fairly well for being something that was just so crazy and over the top. What kind of a letter grade would you give this? And, like, how would you review this movie?
1: Honestly, I had this pegged as a B. Okay. Um, Particularly, um, I think... There's a certain stylistic flair to it that is fun. Um, I don't think it ever reaches, you know, high art. Like, it's nothing about this film in particular is revolutionary, but it's all, like, well-crafted together. It's a nice kind of, like, journeyman film where everyone's putting in the decent work for a decent paycheck. No one's really, like, standing out. Uh, I think Cage and Travolta are having a lot of fun in this one. Oh and, a
0: lot of fun.
1: But neither of them I, I think the script is very weak. That's one thing. Um and it some aspects of it have aged very problematically, but also a lot of those things are uh villainous Said, said in nature, by the, but there's
0: the villain too, so
1: yeah. And also the the my main thing is that I don't think you need the face swap gimmick so much to enjoy this film because one of the big things is it's how much fun uh, Travolta is having as a villain and how how believable kind of Nicolas Cage is as the put-upon-everyman almost. And the for the first part of the film, it doesn't really sell Travolta as a good guy to me. It really doesn't. And we can come back to this when I talk about how he's the worst dad, but <laughs> – I don't really care about the parts of the films where the faces are on the right people. I really don't. And structurally that's a really big weakness.
0: You're right, it is more of the dynamic between Cage and Travolta itself and not even so much the face swapping thing. So it's interesting that that was the dynamic that they chose to go with anyway. Like they chose, or not dynamic, Um, it's interesting that that's kind of like the plot device that they decided to go with when they have two actors who actually have really pretty good chemistry.
1: Yeah. And like when you compare it to his contemporary stuff like, you know, Con Air or Die Hard or... Well, no, Die Hard's much earlier, but like that that kind of 90s gimmick, actually like, you know, Speed, Con Air, stuff like that. Uh, Other, you know, The Rock, other, you know, Cage Fair and really... Like, those have much better crafted scripts and better characters. But I think the reason you stick around for this is, one, the performances. Like I said, Cajun and Travolta have a lot of fun. And also, it's John Woo. The action is ridiculous and bombastic and fun.
0: I think the whole concept itself is so ridiculous that that is what sells this movie. It's the ridiculousness of it. And I think also there are a few times in the movie where it seems to be self-aware of its own ridiculousness. So, like, there's there's a great deal of fun to be had while watching Face Off.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, just ha- this is this is kind of a thing about writing: is an idea is worthless. You can mine it, you can expand upon it, you can create something from it, but the idea is not itself the inherent value of the property. Con Air is a gimmick movie. It's hey, what if we had a prison break on an airplane? The Rock is what if we had a prison break, but Inverse, you know, uh, speed is what if we had a bomb in a terrorist situation on a bus? And the fact that those premises are interesting and set us up for interesting action is nothing without a good script to go behind them. You know, you can remember characters from Con Air. You can remember fucking John Mason from The Rock, you know, and those are great performances. But, you know, you know, Carlo was the prom queen. You know, like there's actual character behind that. There's a script there with meat on the bones and there just isn't here. And
0: yeah, the dialogue is extremely wooden.
1: Yeah. And actually, you know what? I'm kind of talking this over. I think I'm actually going to downgrade this to a B minus, but it is a B minus that I love. Uh, This is something that uh, I think people will enjoy if they're into kind of cheesy action movies and they're not necessarily looking for the, you know, Thrilling, grip you by the balls, kind of fair that this might try to sell itself as.
0: Sure, yeah. It's
1: like it, the question is, you know, when you watch Mission Impossible Two, are you like, oh my god, they're jousting on motorcycles? Are you like, exactly. oh my god, they're jousting on motorcycles? If you're the latter, then you know this film might not be for you.
0: I will say though, I do like Mission Impossible Two. Like, I would rank that higher. To me, Mission Impossible Two is the B+, plus, and this movie is the C+. Plus. For some reason, that's how I'm ranking these movies. And it's it's not a C that I didn't enjoy. It is definitely a C that I enjoyed. But um, okay. I do think Mission Impossible is a little bit better.
1: Okay, so let's get mechanical here. What's really, Let's actually start with performances, because Travolta and Cage, I think, are the heart of this movie. Without them, the entire thing falls apart.
0: A hundred percent. Cage is able to channel this kind of manic energy. And I think this is really around the time where he's cultivated this kind of status. But this is the point at which people start saying like, wow, this Nicolas Cage guy, he's pretty crazy, right? Um, And that's because Cage was very into character acting.
1: Yeah, no, this is a great manic cage, because I I think it's been said a couple times in a couple different places that there's, like, maybe, like, three different Nicholas Cages. There's, like, Wild and Crazy Cage. uh, (laughs) There's Intense Cage. And then there's Sleepy Cage. Yeah, there's Weatherman Cage.
0: There is Weatherman Cage.
1: And actually, no, there's also, like... I, I like you got that kind of Stanley Goodspeed like put upon Cage, which I also yeah. Really, I, I don't think that's kind of covered by any of the other categories. And it's weird that Nicolas Cage both has a range and doesn't. Because I think the there is- are
0: times where he chooses not to do stuff. Like I, I honestly think that there he is probably a good actor, but there are definitely parts where he's just taking the part for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, um, but what I find really interesting about this film is, I don't buy Travolta as a good like. I, I've got a couple notes here. Uh, in particular, uh, when you look at, and it's also really confusing to talk about the performances because this is kind of one of those like it's like that Tumblr post that gets circulated around. It's like here's a. Here's Helen Bonham Carter acting is Emma Watson acting is Helena Bonham Carter it's like this is acting guys and it's like okay yeah that's really cute but it's just called acting and here you know, you've got who is Castor Troy who is Sean Archer and it's a little muddy um so to clarify for those of us who are joining us and haven't seen the film Sean Archer is John Travolta as the FBI agent. Caster Troy is Nicolas Cage as the terrorist for hire and then they swap faces and it becomes Nicolas Cage as Sean Archer the, who is pretending to be Caster Troy and then John Travolta as Caster Troy who is pretending to be Sean Archer you see how it gets a little bit muddy
0: yeah Woo! We are summarizing that yeah hopefully we can remember that throughout the podcast
1: <laughs> Yes, Sean Archer, see I have to think about which one it is,
0: exactly when
1: he's played by John Travolta <laughs> Is kind of a man on a mission. Uh, he's introduced through Castor Troy shooting him through the chest in an attempt to kill him and hitting his his young son. Which, by the way, I actually thought was a great introductory sequence because
0: really? there's this
1: great. It, it, it's it's hokey. I'll, I'll Can, admit it's hokey.
0: Convince me. Convince me why this is great.
1: One thing I really like about it is it's it's first of all it's told visually. It's um there's no words to it there's no it's like oh my baby boy let's go on the carousel there's none of that shit uh but secondly i also like first of all we have Nicolas cage's awful mustache which just it makes me laugh oh, it, it,
0: it, so bad
1: <laughs> so bad it, it it does first of all set up a passage of time with the shaving of the mustache and it feels different to the rest of the film that's much more you know blue-collar assassin is, you know, he's on the hill, he's doing dirty work, whereas you come to him six years later in the film, and he's wearing this suit with this great, I don't know what it's called, but there's like this great shiny material that's got this weird kind of subsurface scattering to it. Uh, he's, you know, walking around with gold-plated dual handguns and flying around is, it, it feels differently. Um, but also, there's the fact that he hesitates to shoot when the kid is visible, but then... Sean clutches Michael close to his chest, which hides him from view of the sniper and makes him assume that the shot is safe to take. He shoots him through the chest and into the kid's head. And that I think is really clever because it implies the headshot on the kid without directly showing that kind of gore or like being, how do you say, uncouth about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a very well... uh, It's a well-filmed sequence, I guess. I would say cinematography-wise. Because you're right, they are doing a lot of visual storytelling.
1: And like I said, it is hokey, but that's part of the appeal of this film, it is hokey. Because, you know, you've got a lot of kind of grousing about, oh, the scar on my chest, oh, I wish it had been closer to the left so that I would die and Mikey would live, you know? And, like, it's cheesy, but it kind of works for this film. And so, like, being that intimate and being that kind of incidental about Michael's death is, I think, kind of important to the structure of the film.
0: Yeah, I do. So, here's why I'm of two minds about this sequence. Um, I think, on the one hand, the cheesiness of the sequence came through to me through sound, in particular, through that just absolutely kooky, carousel, like, piano xylophone sounding thing and then in the children's laughter which is so canned it could have been drawn straight from a sitcom um I'm not a huge fan of cheesy stuff like that so I think that's partly why I'm conflicted about it but also I do think that the way that that sequence is filmed and the way that the sound comes out lets you know what kind of a ride you're in for right off the bat that this is going to be a movie that doesn't really have these sorts of like pretensions to greatness or pretensions to communicating an idea to you that it that the film itself feels self-important it doesn't have that it wants to entertain you and i think there is something important about that
1: yeah um so coming back to travolta for a second uh so a couple things. Uh, One, he's in a kind of terrible spot in his relationship with his wife, which gets exploited by Caster Troy later. Um, But one of the things he says after he catches Caster Troy is he's talking to his wife and sorry, Eve, and he says something along the lines, I don't remember the entire line, but you know, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do counseling. Implying that he fucking hasn't. And that's like, what the fuck, dude? Your son got killed in your arms. You were shot through and you haven't done counseling. Like the only way I know this is the nineties, but the only way I can see that he didn't get any kind of trauma counseling is if he deliberately refused it.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of one of the uh, major tropes of 1990s, like cop fiction and action movies is the guy who won't go to counseling like it is a major theme within nypd blue the tv show um that gets explored a lot about the implications of what happens when you go to counseling so i do think that that's really heavily steeped in this kind of like 90s cop mystique or fbi agent mystique and and that's probably why he that yeah, is definitely
1: But th- that kind of plays into a lot of why I feel like he's actually he's not the good guy, kind of. And it, it like Travolta doesn't really sell him as a protagonist, uh, particularly uh, when he decides to do the face swap. When he decides to do his face off, see how much fun that is. See how much fun yes, that is. It... Um, okay, there's this it. great <laughs> stop where you see the moment the decision is made. And it's not. We need to save the city. It's not. There will be terror and mayhem. It's and then Caster Troy wins, and it's a close up on his face, and he looks back, and that's when he decides to do it. And it's not about salvation. It's not about justice. It's about winning the game. Um, particularly that shot is also matched with a second shot. A couple seconds later when he's saying, you're asking me to put in the dark all the people that love me and trust me. You're asking me to risk my neck. You're asking me to do this terrible thing and, like, wear the face of the man who killed my son. You're you're asking me to betray people. And it's the same shot as Caster Troy wins. And he does it anyways. He doesn't even ask for assurances. He doesn't say... No one has to go, well, no, we have to save the city. Millions of people will die. Uh, blah, blah, blah. We don't know. We're running out of time. Th- there's nothing. He, doesn't, he just says that he's doing this terrible thing and then does it. There's no negotiation. Mm. Uh,
0: one of the notes that I have about um, John Travolta playing this character is uh, pragmatic ethics. He says at one point in the film, um, I do what needs doing, no matter the cost. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Like, he can't sell this dude as a good guy fully. He's very pragmatic and
1: to a fault. And also, the, he has some kind of quirks as leader of the FBI slash LAPD task force. It's not yeah. ever really it's clear so which It's so unclear.
0: Is. Yeah, it's super unclear which one it is, which I think makes this even more interesting and kind of like tropey and meta in a weird way.
1: Yeah, but he, 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 there, there's some conflicting stuff because... Um, when they're at the celebration party for catching Caster Troy, uh, the, I think the F, I think he, uh, I don't know who sends it. I think it's like the CIA or something, sends a ball of champagne, and he says to send it back, and he makes this big speech where he names all the agents that died catching this guy.
0: Oh, that was and, so insipid.
1: <laughs> yeah, but here's the thing. He yeah. has taken basically no... His entire approach to catching Castle Troy has been to throw every resource at it and damn the consequences. Right. Uh, Like, it's supposed to be this big, somber moment of, you know, oh, we we lost so much to get here. Uh, Why are you guys clapping? This is a somber moment. But also, he's disregarding the kind of moment of triumph that his agency or department has gotten. Like, this has been a big fucking deal. He's been on this for six years and he's like, he's not letting them have that catharsis. I could see maybe having that and just having, him like, go along with it and then, like, in his private office, like, confide to someone that, like, he can't take joy in it. That, I think, might have worked better. But beyond that also, uh, there's many moments where Caster Troy, like, threatens someone with a gun or, like, you know, holds a hostage while he's doing this rapid action. And then he just goes ahead anyways and Caster Troy just shoots the fucking guy, like the uh, the yeah. woman in the plane.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: So I feel like he's trying to be somber about things that he definitely could have prevented and chose not to.
0: Yeah, I think, too, it's about, I don't know, like, he's kind of, we have Bad Daddy Part 2 face off Boogaloo this week, I feel like. Um, Because (laughs) Travolta's character kind of acts like a dad in that sequence, when um, those agents first start slow clapping for him in the room, and it that whole thing kind of felt like a dad telling off his kids, being like, no, don't you get it? It's it's not like that. that kind don't of you stuff. get
1: it? It's a Shakespearean tragedy.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was really what it felt like to me. Like, this is kind of father knows best. That's his moment that he's having
1: there. He also kind of just has no connection whatsoever with his daughter. Um, Like, uh, Caster Troy as Caster Troy as Sean Archer uh, does have the whole, you know, don't dress like a slut moment, but that also Uh, comes as a framing device for advices like defend yourself. And he's weirdly a better dad in a way, even though like aside, we'll get to Caster Troy.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come I, I,
1: back I, I, to I'm, that. I'm focusing on Sean Archer for a second. But he basically looks her and... He doesn't engage with her at all. He's just... Oh, you're dressing like the monsters now. You know? It's just... Ugh. Yeah. yeah he, he's a bad dad. He's a bad husband. He's a bad FBI agent. Or LAPD officer. I don't fucking know. <laughs> and also... I don't think Travolta has the, like, he has amazing charisma as uh, Caster Troy as Sean Archer. Oh, this is so, I, yeah. I hate this premise so much.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, you know, woo wee, you're good looking, uh, the whole thing. <laughs> and basically, everyone in his life likes him more when he's Caster Troy.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, there's this, Okay, there was an improvised line in there about that Nicolas Cage... No, no, it was that he made, that John Travolta makes, while he's playing the bad guy playing the good guy, which is how I'm going to phrase this now, where he's talking about, I don't know what I hate more, being in your face or being in your pudgy body. And that line was apparently improvised, which... I like his performance as the villain is so it's weirdly good it's weirdly weirdly good it's weirdly dialed in there's this he's a bully um and he knows how to subtly craft an argument to really get under people's skin and kind of like needle them and I think that's what's good about his performance is he really comes off that way I don't know, did you see him like that?
1: Yeah, kind of.
0: Um, or was it different? Like, feel free to disagree.
1: I'm not disagreeing with you. The other thing I want to talk about is Cage's performance. Uh, Cause yeah. first of all, I-, I love the introductory chapter of Cage as uh, Caster Joy. Uh, Cause like he- he- he's absolute scum, absolute oh, yeah. scum. And he plays it to a T. You know, he he's dressed as a priest. He's setting up a bomb. He's rocking out to Hallelujah, and it's it's terrible he's, and great. He's
0: feeling up a girl in the choir who looks like she's a teenager. So there's this oh, weird yeah. other element to it too that's really disturbing. Like,
1: oh no, absolutely. It's like
0: it's yeah. It's a well put together sequence.
1: Yeah. But once you get past that, because he gets to just go absolutely hog wild for about five minutes of footage, and then after that point, uh, that's becomes Travolta, and he becomes Sean Archer, who, is for, who actually goes through a pretty decent arc of, I'm in control, I'm in this precarious situation, but aha, I've got it, I've got the information from Pollux, I'm going, I'm going to get out of here. Oh no, John Travolta comes up to me. My plan is dead in the water. Everyone who helped me is dead. No one knows my secret. I need to escape prison. I need to tell my wife. I need to convince her who I am. You know, there's this there's this compelling arc to him. And Cage really sells that very well.
0: He does and- sell it very well. He's a very good hero. Like, he's very emotive and expressive like the way that he conveys his feelings he's wearing things on his face and i think that works very well like he seems conflicted he seems frightened at other times he seems very confident um and also i think the sequence where he's adjusting to figuring out who this guy is who caster is that was one of the most interesting pieces of acting i yeah. think for him in um this film. so
1: i'm actually i'm just looking at the imdb page here and the poster is out me because this is something i'm thinking about cage in general and i think part of his career and appeal is he's got gigantic eyes
0: yeah yeah you know? he does
1: have big uh, eyes <laughs> <laughs> uh so th- there's a kind of innocence and wide-eyed believability to him and i think that's a big part of his career is even when he's crazy like he's got these big wide open eyes it's like those are the iconic Nicolas cage moments uh, right. he's, he's got that distinct voice, but he also has this really emotive face. He's, he's got the big anime eyes, and you compare that to Travolta on the cover, who's you know got more squinty eyes and you know a
0: little bit serpentine. I'd say exactly.
1: So, like, I think also in direct comparison, just Cage is a more everyman face, where Travolta is more like a sculpted kind of arrow of a man. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> to mix okay. my metaphors a lot
0: a sculpted arrow of a man I'm making that a hashtag
1: yeah.
0: okay but no you, you, I totally you, see what you're you, saying what I, mean. I totally see it
1: um, but I think what's also an, another condemnation of Sean Archer as a character is when he has the face <laughs> on the first thing he does in the mirror is not oh god it's him is he experiments with it he tries it on and then he puts on a smile and it's disturbing as shit. Like, it's this giant, like, skull face smile where you can see the, not just his teeth, but the structure of his gums and, like, the kind of shape of the skull underneath. Yeah. And it, he holds that for a couple of seconds before having a free gun attacking. And I think it's not that he's like, oh, that's Castor Troy. That's the face of my enemy, the man who killed my son. It's, it's how, mu- how easily he inhabits it. I think that's what he's actually mm. striking out against. And I think it's a solid distinction. And Oh, that's that's
0: really interesting read of that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I saw this years and years and years ago. And seeing it now, I'm just like, I don't like Sean Archer. I really don't. Until later on when he's, you know, Nick Cage. And he's gone through some shit. And he's been put upon. And he's suffered. And he's been beat to shit a bit. Until that point, I don't buy him as a protagonist.
0: No, and there's even moments, too, this is something that I also have written down, um, about the prison and, like, the prison guards specifically, like, the way that the prisoners are treated here. It's obvious that rioting and fights are common and that the guards allow this to go on and that the guards themselves are abusive. And um, it's only when Sean Archer kind of gets wailed upon by the prisoners that he's like, when I get out of here, I'm going to do something about this place. It's kind of like, well, dude, you know, like maybe you should have been doing that before. Like maybe this kind of just naturally lends itself to these forms of violence. Um, but I think that was a really interesting moment for me because it kind of told me something about the character that the only way that he was going to do stuff for other people was if he personally felt it himself. Like if he experienced it. There's other stuff we haven't talked about, too, kind of like how the characters of color and women in this film relate to him. Um, Much like Sean is unable to really kind of see things until he experiences them, he kind of doesn't seem to value people around him, and really the film doesn't value women or people of color very much. People of color in this film are props, essentially, for Sean's will. Um, this is most notable in the scene where Tito, again an interesting choice of character name, has gasoline poured on him um, and will presumably be set on fire. Um, we've also got like the way that he treats his wife and daughter, their kind of property to him, their property that he is fighting with Castor over, um, and also seeking to control their decisions. So, um, you know, this film is obviously not unproblematic in the way that it treats everyone except for white men. And I think if there's one thing that I've learned from doing this podcast with you, it's that this tends to be the way that the action genre works. Like, it's very much a white man genre.
1: Um, So that's kind of the core of the film. Uh, yeah. What's interesting, though, is um, there's a couple. There's not much of a supporting cast, although I was surprised to see Margaret Cho in this. Because she kind of does too. nothing, almost. She does But still she still builds. She she still builds.
0: Was this at like, the beginning still... of her film career?
1: I don't know. Let's actually check that out. Because that was one thing I, I, I would not have... Because I feel like she's lost weight since then. Because I didn't recognize her. Uh, and I wouldn't have... I don't think I would have recognized her if her name hadn't popped up as an on-screen credit in the intro. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, because I also noticed her and I was kind of like, oh, this is going to be interesting. You know, like we saw her in Bright earlier this year. Like, let's see what kind of part she had. And then it was very meh. Didn't really hear much from her.
1: Yeah, I'm not seeing much around that time. Um, Beyond that, I think everyone else is kind of forgettable. I mean, Joan Allen is competent. She's kind of the strained wife, but I I don't think there's anything particularly interesting there. Dominique Swain, I think, brings a little bit of heart to Jamie, the daughter. Yeah. Um, but I think the weird standout for me is Nick Cassavetes. Is, is that how I'd say that? Casavetes. Cassavetes. I think Cassavetes. it's Cassavetes. As Dietrich Hassler. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I actually really like, he reminds me of a younger John Malkovich.
0: Yeah, I kind of thought it was John Malkovich for, like, the first two minutes he was on screen. And then I was like, oh, wait a second. <laughs>
1: And I I don't know what I don't know what that quality is of John Malkovich's acting that I feel is being captured here. But it, you know, what I'm talking about when I say it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, no idea. Of
1: like intensity into levity, I think is what I'm going to is this ability to laugh but laugh in a way that's a little bit scary. Yeah,
0: again, it's that same kind of manic energy that Cage has, but with. Um, Malkovich, it's a lot more subdued and like he communicates it through a smoother like softer cadence. I think that was part of where I got it from.
1: Yeah. So with Kasavet is, it's much more I I think it's also in how he's framed because Dietrich first comes in as uh, a lead that Sean Archer hits up and that's the other thing that I think is also condemning is Sean Archer when he's introduced to the plan to become Castro Troy, he's like, no, no way. I'll just hit all my sources. And it seems that he comes up to the point of some pretty deliberate police brutality there. He's like interrogating subjects in ways that are not cool. Yeah. Uh, And Dietrich comes in. He's like, and he's got that calm intensity to him. He's like, you know, this has your signature all over it. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, but you got nothing on me and you can't prove shit. And he has that intensity. So when we're introduced to him later as a, a kind of touch point for, sean archer as caster troy to stop in and use as a safe house uh you have that intensity which dissolves into levity once you've broken past that layer of defense and he's like ah my friend caster troy come on let's hang out so yeah um beyond that i don't think there's anyone else i particularly care about in the cast yeah, I mean I... no, no. There's there's Alessandro Nivola as Pollux Troy, which we need to talk about.
0: Yeah, he actually. I... It, what do you think of him? Because I actually thought some of his acting at the beginning was particularly good.
1: Yes, I think he turns in a compelling performance. Yeah, I just think the direction is kind of dated and problematic but it's nothing it's no it's no besmirchment on his performance or his acting ability yeah it's just what he was asked to do is maybe not necessarily what we would ask him to do today um and this kind of gets to one of the things that i think is really kind of weirdly problematic about this film is both pollux and caster Troy have this kind of queer coding to him um pollux in particular um he he has this like childish younger brother he's definitely the younger brother and he's got this kind of hero worship going on but it borders on almost fetishistic at times um there's these kind of like almost longing glances that are kind of uncomfortable it's like when he's pinned to the ground and you know it's like he looks at him and it's like you're gonna escape aren't you yeah i am oh brother and it's just weird but he's also like he's having fun and i feel like he's almost kind of playing into that like Hollywood autistic almost where he's like really neurotic and obsessive and kind of closed off.
0: See. Okay. So that's really interesting because I was, like I said, I found Nivola's performance to be pretty good. Like his line delivery. I think there were times where I was like, what movie is he in? Cause no one else is in that movie. But I do agree with you. There's definitely some queer coding going on here. Um, And this is something that is a hallmark of John Woo's work. Multiple film dictionaries, when I looked this up last night, have acknowledged this, that there is a, um, I'm going to call it excessive masculinity at times that kind of gets read as homoeroticism, which I, I think is a legitimate read of it. Um, and there is something really weird about this kind of queer coding of villains. It's a it's a form of homophobia and queer phobia that goes back cinematically to Alfred Hitchcock's work. Um Hitchcock was known to make villain characters gay, specifically because he was homophobic and the public that he made films for was. So that was kind of a justification for them to be oft in movies and i think that was what i found really disturbing about this even if you're reading it as a sort of um cinematic portrayal of being on a kind of autistic spectrum there is a sort of weird i don't i don't know how to put it i would almost call it absurd eroticism to some of the stuff that he says And so I don't know if you can fully read it as a kind of spectrum
1: disorder. This is one of those things I think is kind of a read that changes over time. Because one of the things I feel is when you get to this era of cinema, this is before, I think, as a general movie going public, we kind of started indulging in kind of pathologies of uh, mental divergence. And so, Mm. like, here's kind of where I'm going with this. Yeah. Is I feel like he is portrayed as a weirdo. And this yes. is before you would kind of have an, this is before I think as a public at large and as a screenwriter, you would go, this weirdo has um, anxiety disorder. This weirdo has, you know, autism. It's just, this guy is weird and creepy. And it's, it's, I think it's portrayed as a character flaw more than a pathology.
0: Um, I think it's a pathology and here's why. So uh, during the 1990s, you have this kind of long history of people coming up with ideas about how to um, address and identify criminals. And one of these ideas is um, that during the late 80s and early 1990s, there is a generation of sociopaths. That's legitimately what it's called. This results in a lot of different discourses, some of which we've talked about before, um, one of which is definitely the super predator, obviously. There are different kinds of super predators in movie fiction during this period. There's Hannibal Lecter, um, who's a pastiche of multiple serial killers. But I think that um, Castor and Pollux are also different pathologies being portrayed here Um, one of which is the idea of the queer person as a kind of deviant and I think the other one is uh, most likely these really sort of messed up ideas that people had during the early 90s about what sociopathy and psychopathy are so that was something that I I noticed kind of going throughout the movie the idea that uh, a sociopath would act in the particular ways that Nicolas Cage does, uh, that's not quite how that works at all. So it's very much this kind of like um, over-the-top hyperbolic performance that's reliant on these older tropes of, um, I don't know, psychological pathologies. That's the best way that I can put it.
1: That's kind of fair. And this is one of those things that it it's hard for me to have this conversation about because the attitudes in the film and as a general culture have changed so much that it's so much. almost impossible to reconstruct this from the perspective of the time um it's it's like how you look at i think a lot of older films where you have characters who and the other thing is this is not a capture of a character with a mental illness.
0: No. This
1: is a portrayal by an actor yeah. who is of able body and neurotypical yeah. construction choosing to portray. So ultimately, while we can go back and examine these things and say, oh, uh, this character has this or this character has this kind of pathology, uh, ultimately, at the time, there is intentionality to it, yeah, and the intentionality is through a framework that is right. no longer something that we hold today, exactly, um yeah, so like you know there there's a lot of things like um like as an example, perhaps sling blade, yeah, uh, where I think many of us would find it a compelling portrait of some kind of. Uh, mental divergence i'm not going to specifically commentate on that because i haven't seen the film in a while and i don't want to get into it too much but at the same time that is still a neurotypical able-bodied actor choosing to kind of talk like this and i'm kind of a slow boy you know and there's that 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 understanding of that mental illness and whether you choose to define it as mental illness or just being you know weird it flavors the performance. And back in the late 90s, there are a lot of things that we today would consider to be some form of mental illness or neurodivergence that, like, that's an attitude. Like, you get in a lot of those, like, cursed boomer images. Like, you know, back when my day, you didn't call everyone autistic or Asperger's. You would just call them a weirdo, and they'd grow out of it because you made fun of them, you know? Yeah. And I feel like there's an element of that to Pollux's performance. And it's It's... it's Weird. And to kind of get off this, because I feel like we could just kind of circle around this for a while because it's just messy and there's no good answer or kind of conclusion to it. Yeah. Uh, One thing I actually do find interesting about his performance, well, not his performance, but his role in the script, is he behaves very interestingly kind of inside power dynamics. Yeah. Because one thing we see from him is. He is, once Caster Troy comes to prison, I'm sorry, Sean, Sean Archer <laughs> as Caster Troy, when Nicolas Cage comes and he's the good guy, pretending to be the bad guy.
0: Right.
1: Uh, Pollux Troy does not initially trust him. Um, and there's a lot of stuff about electroshock therapy and excuses as to why he's behaving weirdly. But he, he demands proof, basically. But his brother is his brother. And even when he has the even when he has the kind of uh, verbal proof, the shared history, you know, it's like i hand filled, if if fed you those pills for years, he still doesn't quite get it. But what does kind of get him to open up to his quote unquote brother is when his brother engages in a fetishistic show of violence. And it's just he beats the crap out of some guy. I'm Castor Troy, I'm Castor Troy. And what Castor Troy is I think, in this situation is not necessarily a personal identity, but a broadcast of power and dominion over others. Once he starts basically a prison riot and he's, you know, this, he's the top bitch, then Castor Troy opens up, then Pollux Troy opens up to him. Furthermore, though, um, uh, Sean Archer, as Caster Troy, uh, picks up on this, and once he gets the information that he needs... He just says, bye, bitch. But... And he kind of retreats. And you don't really see them interact until uh, Pollock's Troy gets out again. But when he does, he says, bye, bro. Like, once he's established that Caster Troy... I'm sorry. Sean Archer as Caster Troy is powerless beneath him. Literally beneath him as he's walking above him on some bars in this weird, like, you know, pit cage kind of uh, cell. Um, once he has power over him, he behaves his behavior towards him is completely different it's condescending once he knows who he is once he has on the information and he's acting with this kind of tactical decision making almost he is much more confident and much more cruel
0: yeah no that's very that's very accurate and i think a lot of that sense of duality that you're talking about there you know it this makes a great deal of sense. Like these guys are named Castor and Pollux. And for those who don't know, Castor and Pollux are Roman gods of duality. So this kind of violence and cowering being kind of like paired together with, you know, like cunning and brawn being paired. So that's very much what, what that's dealing with. And there's also a lot of other stuff about duality in this movie, which I found kind of fascinating. Um, So during the 90s, you have all these studies that come out that basically say that a lot of criminals who are in prison have similar um, identity profiles to that of law enforcement officers, which is kind of fascinating. This is something that's still being debated at the time. Um, But so you get a lot of these movies that are about the sort of relationship between a top cop and a top baddie. And these guys are constantly battling it out for power. And this movie is certainly about that. So a lot of the stuff that you're pointing to in terms of duality, like that's very much built into the screenplay.
1: Okay, well, let's just rename this movie the Janus Factor. Yep. Okay, but... <laughs> no, the uh, Here's something I want to talk about briefly, though, yeah. is this, um, this kind of decision-making that we have... On how we tell these stories about cops and robbers, uh, particularly in these like kind of grand action movies, and this goes the gamut from you know Face Off to Heat to like you know Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty is this kind of romanticizing of both police work and criminality as this kind of great intellectual exercise almost, and you see like it's that chess metaphor, and that's where wow. we kind of find things interesting It's like when when you look at what might actually happen in real police work, you know, a lot of it is, you know, confessions and evidence and, you know, gumshoot work. Whereas when you look at film, we don't necessarily really enjoy it. Look at CSI. CSI is like, oh, he, he wore gloves so that he wouldn't leave fingerprints, but we managed to trace the latex. And it's like this move, counter move, mate, check, 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 move out of check, check, mate, kind of play. And that's engaging because it creates these really intelligent and compelling, proactive characters. And so we have, as a society, and especially in film where you don't have room for a lot of subtlety, we have kind of like deified both criminality and police work as this kind of, not necessarily an intellectual pursuit, but a pursuit that involves a lot of cunning and deliberation.
0: Oh, 100%. Yeah. And a lot of that is also to sort of convince us that um I mean, this is theater, right? So like part of what CSI convinces you is that um forensic science can be used almost always for good that you know, the cop always gets his man, which has been a trope of policing fiction since the 1800s really. Um So, yeah, I mean, we are obsessed with this duality, but I think, too, we're really kind of into this idea of propping up the police or propping up a hero who's been much maligned, which um, Travolta's character, Sean, kind of gets to embody that in this film at a certain point. And I think that's why we get the ending that we get, which is him going back to his family and kind of being reconciled with them.
1: Go home and be a family man. Um, <laughs> Street Fighter reference for those of you who don't care about it. <laughs> but, um, interesting thing, actually. Yeah. Um, C- uh, just a side note: uh, CSI has actually been very damaging to jury convictions.
0: Incredibly uh, because damaging because
1: it's it's created this kind of casually accepted standard of proof that is not reached in many cases. So like we kind of expect forensics to be magic that's there in every case and a lot of juries actually have trouble convicting and like prosecutors have had a problem with this since CSI kind of broke the scene and you know ruined non you know non forensic police work for years and years and years it's, That's just a little side.
0: That's yeah, that's interesting. It's one of the ironies of the theater of policing and filmic portrayals of policing too.
1: Yeah, so uh, like we we've kind of approached this film kind of weirdly because we like, have. There's, there's not there's not a lot there, but what is there is kind of interesting to talk about. We've spent so long talking about Cage and Travolta, and then Pollux now. Uh, we kind of haven't even really gone that. I mean, we have cr- covered some of the thematics, but not like as a structured thing. Uh, and I just want to pull out this one thing from my notes. Okay, before we kind of try and move back on track is that they literally suction cup their faces off I'm uh, sorry, yes but that's...
0: <laughs> yes that is not how a face works you guys that is not how that works <laughs> i just like that is one I, of I, my favorite moments in this movie is when they like yeah. <laughs> suction cup their faces off
1: god no i i i just wanted to share that um, that was a technical note. The other one is, <laughs> um, the other one is, oh yeah, that's another member of the supporting cast. It's Danny fucking Masterson, which oh, I yeah. guess is that that's a method acting right there. Cause it broke my heart when it came out that he's a piece of shit. Cause yeah. I, lo- I loved him as Hyde, but it's like, he plays that scumbag type so well. And it's, it's a really effective cast, like gimmick cast there to have him as the rapey boyfriend.
0: Yeah
1: um so let's talk about Castro troy daddy for a second <laughs> oh yes it's weird so it's really
0: you think that yes. he's a better father to sean's daughter than sean is to her is that what you said with with, with caveats ins- certain... obvious
1: with caveats caveats like wanting to fuck her it's like yes uh, it's yeah. weird it's fucking weird this yeah th- this movie this movie is a goofy fucking premise And it makes discussing it a little bit weird. Yeah. As we've seen, Caster Troy, Sean Archer as Caster Troy. Sean Archer, Caster Troy as Sean Archer.
0: I mean, this is the same podcast that that talked about Swiss Army Man. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is what you should expect.
1: So, one of the things he does is, first of all, Sean Archer is a bad husband and a bad father. We need to establish this as a baseline before we can have this conversation, which I think we kind of have. Now, the ways by which he goes about things. Caster Troy is a fucking creepazoid. He reads Eve's diary. He pervs the shit out of Jamie. And that's really bad. Will establish this. However, within the construct of creating this false narrative where he is Sean Archer. And he's sliding himself into that life. He is attentive to to Eve's needs. uh, And he is receptive to and observant about Jamie's life and her struggles. Um, The way that he engages with them is not healthy or positive really at all, but he does engage with them in a way that Sean Archer doesn't. Now, the, the question is, is a bad dad worse than a neglectful dad? That's depending on a lot of things. But at the very least, everyone likes him. Everyone likes him. No one in his life is like, God, you've been kind of a weirdo lately and I'm suspicious. Everyone's like, ah, you got the stick out of your ass? Oh hey dad. It's like he uh he gets a phone call from the president and he says the president can wait. My w like my wife's online too. Mm. Is Yes, it is nefarious, it is deceptive, it is monstrous. But this is kind of a question of intent versus, you know, effect. And in a way, I think if the fiction wasn't threatened... Well, I mean, obviously, Caster Troy being Caster Troy, he probably would have been, you know, cheating on her. He probably would have, you know, tried to fuck the daughter. It would be weird, but also... Within the scope of the film, within that short period of time, he's, by trying to act like a dad at all, he's doing a better job than Sean Archer. Okay. Hmm.
0: So, okay. So I'm going to make an argument for the opposite very briefly. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay. So I think this gets back to your question of which is worse, a neglectful dad or a dad who is attentive but does things in a bad way. I actually think that um, both of these men treat women horrendously, but I do Absolutely. have to say that I think that it's Castor's treatment of um, Sean's wife and daughter that I find perhaps the most insidious and disturbing, partly because of how it's portrayed. You're right to point out the fact that no one seems to recognize that he's changed, which I found really interesting because I think it tells us actually a lot about his relationship with his wife. If he's coming on to her like he does in the first scene where Castor as Sean meets his wife, Um, I think she would probably, like a normal person would be like, what's wrong with you? She does not, which suggests that they have very limited contact with one another, which is not great. On top of this, it's the advice that Castor gives to um, Sean's daughter that I found the most disturbing and that I think actually enacts a kind of trauma on her that ends up playing out weirdly at the end of the film. Um, he tells her at one point, um, dress up like Halloween and ghouls will try to get in your pants. He also tells her that her particular style of dressing and her mode of doing her makeup is not her. Um, and this is all right after he's beat up this kid who was trying to rape her. So he's performed this kind of like defensive role as dad, like he's fulfilled that kind of like, okay, I'm going to protect my family role. And then he turns around and he tells her that stuff, that basically she deserves this uh, for dressing the way that she is and that there's something deeply wrong with doing your makeup in a certain way or wearing certain kinds of clothes. Then by the end of the film, when Sean comes back to his family, she has had a makeover. She's got straight hair, she's wearing practically no makeup, and she's dressed like, I don't know, um, kind of like a bland suburbia type outfit. So the advice that he has given her is to conform. And she takes it and she does and we don't get to see any of the other implications of what he's done but there is this deep psychic trauma to the idea that your your dad or somebody who inhabited your dad's body could potentially have raped you could potentially have murdered you hands you a knife
1: absolutely
0: like i don't know that that we can say which one of these guys is worse because I, I do think that neglect produces its own forms of trauma but man, the stuff that Caster does is really damaging. I think it's just that we don't see that damage play out fully on screen. We just see some of the implications of it.
1: Okay, so here's a thought on that and I, I, I agree with a lot of what you say. Yeah. Um, But particularly, this is where we kind of run into an issue of naturalism versus storytelling almost to a point Yep. where I feel like because she does end up conforming because she does end up using the knife in a positive manner um, within the language of the film it yeah. was good advice yep. because ultimately you see this as the directorial vision is that she was just acting out and trying to cover the trauma is it's portrayed as being an accurate read of her emotional state because like she doesn't even flinch when he says you haven't been the same since Mikey died. It's conjecture. It's a stab in the dark almost, but it lands. And so like, yes, ultimately if we want to expand this beyond the scope of the film, it's like, Holy shit, what the fuck did you do to this poor girl? And there's going to be all kinds of messed up trauma to that. But within the film, that trauma is not explored and is not a part of this film.
0: Yeah. And yep. I agree with that. No, I, so I think that, so. That's it's kind of, not intended.
1: And so that's kind of why, like, it's weird because the advice that he does give her is applicable and she does use it and it's a big part of the climax of the film the other thing is that his condemnation of her outfit and you know dressing like halloween is something that i think the film implicitly endorses as a valid criticism and is kind of like you know i think matching to the time we don't this remember this is 97 this is 20 years ago this is not the attitudes that we have now about you know female empowerment and sexuality and you know, rape culture and so on, is at the time, I don't think that it is necessarily seen as that monster, especially how briefly it's touched upon and how it's not really remarked upon in any way.
0: Yeah, no, I guess I was just taking your reading of, you know, like, who's more monstrous to be more of like a from our contemporary perception type thing. So I'll admit that my read is completely extra textual. I'll totally admit that. Like, this is some pretty messed up stuff if you look at it from the outside. I do think you're right. The film produces a kind of logic by which this advice works. Um, but I do also think like this is sort of the codification of the ideas of rape culture. And it's very early. Like this is 97. So yep. it's it's just interesting because it is such a popular movie and it is uh, to a certain extent it's letting us know that these ideas exist not only in the 1990s, but it's kind of continuing to perpetuate them every time we watch it, too. It's one of those difficult things about watching a movie like this that is so dated.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree with anything. Caster Troy is a monster yeah. and does traumatize this family. But, but
0: he also does pay I, more attention to them. And I think you are right about that. But it's yeah for the purpose of it's manipulation. like it, it, it's
1: it's difficult to kind of put some nuance on this because the extremes of this film are very extreme it's not just like oh and it turns out he was secretly someone else like it's not a case of like ide- just identity theft it's a case of identity theft also uh, have the trauma of now your dad wanted to bone you but it wasn't really your dad but was it your dad he had your dad's face also you love that dad more than your regular dad <laughs> 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 you know it's it's kind of the scope of the film and absolutely like if you examine it logically and kind of deterministically it's like holy shit that oh, girl's fucked up for life no
0: the sequel is definitely uh, a darren arnofsky film like yeah
1: oh no 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 oh, no, no.
0: oh yes oh yeah
1: i i I also i i, I flinched when you said the sequel i'm like wait there's a sequel oh god what, what? <laughs> no
0: luckily luckily we were spared that um i don't actually know how he could have outdone himself after this and there's a lot of stuff that we kind of haven't touched on because we've been talking about you know this kind of like the deeper thematics of this movie and some of the problematic stuff but uh we could probably talk a a bit about some of the sequences that we liked i think that's valid do you want to do that
1: yeah sure um in particular, the the first sequence, I think, is kind of interesting in that it shows the kind of feric victory that Sean Archer is willing to take. Yeah. Um, I also just love the fucking, like, the random jet engine testing bay in the airport. Yeah. They, it's just a weird prop. It is.
0: So much of this movie, to me, seems to be built around images. Um you know, like things that people were thinking about in the writer's room or that people were thinking about when they were storyboarding and were kind of like, hey, this would be really cool. So like when the jet engine turns on and Caster is thrown backwards, it's a really beautiful shot and it's it's weird, it's absurd, and it's over the top, but it is cool. Um, and that first shootout also between Sean and, and Caster it's really beautifully filmed. The whole sequence at the airport is also just absolutely crazy. But I I thought it was really okay. pretty riveting.
1: Um, it's also fun how that first shootout kind of give it gave it away to me because I didn't I I wasn't paying too much attention to the intro credits. I didn't realize it was a John film John Foo Fu- John Wu film until uh, yeah that first fight that first I mean, shootout yeah. happened and then I saw wait a second, Nicolas Cage is diving through the air, guns akimbo. This yep. is a John Woo movie, isn't it? And it was. But um, particularly, I think what's interesting about this film that I saw mm. is one of the things that John Woo is concerned with as a filmmaker is kind of the dance of bodies moving through the air. Yeah. Uh, would you say that's a fair? Because I'm not super familiar with Woo's work. I kind of know more of oh, the cultural osmosis and so on. Yeah. Uh, and just... I'm sorry, but the single solitary dove in the church was a uh, great moment. Uh,
0: that was just absolutely amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but in particular, I think what's interesting... I think a shot that tells me a lot about Wu... Is, does not concern either of our primary characters. But it's in the raid on Dietrich's compound. Yeah. And there's a moment where a SWAT officer is dropping down on a line... Shooting oh, yeah. at people... And then I don't remember who shoots him, but someone fills him full of holes. And then he goes limp in the air and then the line just drops him. Once he is no longer an active participant in the gunfight, he is no longer suspended by the director. Yeah, He's no longer allowed to rule the sky, so to speak. I just think that's kind of a nice microcosm of how Wu works.
0: I think that's brilliant. Um, And I've never heard somebody talk about his work that way before like I've heard people say he likes slow-mo he likes gunfights and they often tie it to um, spaghetti westerns um, specifically to the work of Vincente Minnelli and uh, Sam Peckinpah I think and I can see a lot of their influence in his work and and he's definitely said that he's very into that style but I love what you're saying about this kind of like balletic component to it it's like an air ballet and you Well, i mean that's kind of what
1: he's known for is this he's like jackie chan with guns almost where Mm -hmm. one of the 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 most iconic thing you can think of when you think of a john woo film is first of all dual wielding yep because that's just kind of his one of his hallmarks. But second of all, is diving through the air while shooting. What you yes. won't see in a John Woo film is like Arnold Schwarzenegger standing rock solid with a minigun, is right. you're going to see live men leaping through the air, taking shots at each other. And he's very concerned with movement. And I think like maybe the most John Woo, non-John Woo film would be something like Equilibrium, where it's oh, all yeah. about stances and moving around. And, and this kind of. <laughs> Yeah, the the reading of the battle. Yeah. Um, in particular, what's I think kind of interesting is, I think an element of Wu's work is understanding the fight, understanding the gun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had this conversation off the podcast before yeah. about kind of the American versus the Eastern myth of the gun.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Where... In American culture, uh, this is... By the way, I want to give credit to Extra Credits, who kind of introduced this idea to me. Uh, I'll link to that one in the show notes. But um, in the American tradition, the gun is a symbol of independence and power. It's something that can be granted to any man to make him powerful and bring him... You know, the gun myth is baked into the founding of the American experiment. Yeah. Whereas in the Eastern tradition... Uh, particularly in japan uh, this is like I, I i'm very much being reductive and conflating East and that's not proper but it i still feel like it it's applicable to john woo's work so disclaimer is this is not a one for one but in the east tradition a sword and by extension a gun is more an extension of the self and something that could be honed and made manifest that's why you know you've got a lot more like you know uh single-shot kill, intent to kill, uh, you know, uh, what's it? Not Ishido. Um, There's a martial art, kill from the draw. Right. Uh, And it's all about intentionality and extending the will of the self. Mm. Um, In particular, one of the most famous swordsman myths, uh, is it Musashi?
0: I think so. But you should double-check.
1: Yeah, that's uh, Musashi's ore. Yeah, is uh, a great swordsman who uh, that's was Miyamoto Musashi, a great swordsman who carved an ore into a sword-shaped boken and used that to win a victory in a sword duel. Uh, so it's this idea that the implement doesn't matter; it is the user, and you can see that particularly when in the final fight at the church, right during the standoff, yeah,
0: very because nice
1: when when um. When Nicolas Cage, as Sean Archer, as (laughs) Caster Choi, finally engages in the shootout during that ridiculous standoff, by the way. There's like eight people in that. It's Uh, crazy. But he does, he shoots in both directions and does not look in either. It's this intentionality of having read the scene, understanding where to place your shots, and then just executing. There is no aiming. And in John Wu's work, there is never any aiming. It is always these people who can play shots where they want. The question is who knows. The question is putting yourself where the enemy will not be placing shots and knowing where your enemy will be so you can place your shots there. I feel like that's kind of the dynamic that he works in to create. And that's why these heroes can just kind of dash through gunfights and come out unscathed is because they are on a ascended playing field from everyone else in the fight.
0: I, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also, you know, that's a part of the visual, right? Not just the fact that when people shoot at them, they miss, but also this emphasis on balletic movement that you were talking about before. The idea of the hero as graceful and grace is something that conveys skill. Um, and also something that conveys to us, the audience, that, you know, these guys are just a cut above. they're They're almost like superheroes a bit, you know? Yeah.
1: Um, I also want to point out, though, that, like, this does work in a frenetic gunfight. Yeah. But when you get close and when you get slow, it really falls apart. In particular, the mirror fight, uh, kind of midway through the film mm-hmm. after Beatrix's apartment, I think is a lot of fun. And you've got this great kind of tension and build up up until they're on opposite sides of a mirror. And they're both shooting each other, but they're shooting at their own faces, which is a great moment. But the second that happens, the second they actually take the shot, they each kind of move to the side and lean away from the shots. So they both manage to hit their targets, but also miss their targets. And then you get this kind of ridiculous moment where they're diving to the ground, crouching, spinning around. And what it reminds me of is this kind of like, it's like watching in third-person someone trying to abuse stance changes in a first-person shooter <laughs> where it's like okay uh dive backwards um dolphin dive yeah. crouch crouch lean <laughs> dive prone stand prone lean roll over recover. cover it's, <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous and it just doesn't quite work for me
0: yeah i think it's supposed to and be he- expressive of that you know idea of duality again but also This is one of those cases where it's kind of like, okay, you've got this metaphor that you want to carry throughout the film clearly, but how do you do this in a visual way that's going to be exciting for your audience and is not going to look weird at a certain point? And I feel like the mirror sequence, it definitely did look weird.
1: Yeah. Um, Were there any other sequences that you in particular enjoyed that I haven't mentioned here?
0: Hmm... Oh, um, <laughs> this is more of an aside than another sequence, but um, the scene with the motorboat at the end, or like the speedboat, <laughs> where one of them—I was going to bring
1: that up if you did—like so skiing you
0: with their face. Um, but tell us more about the sequence because you probably have more to say about it. I thought it was completely ridiculous, but I enjoyed the heck out of it. So tell us more about this.
1: Honestly, it was just way too fucking long. Yeah. (laughs) Just straight up. Um, There's a little bit of interesting stuff going on there where, you know, they're, like, trying to beat each other and they're wrestling control. And there's this brief moment of the decision not to take a fair victory where uh, I can't even remember who it is. But one of them turns the boat away from crashing into a pier despite and giving up a moment of vulnerability in the fight in order to save them both. Uh, And I actually really like the final confrontation where John Travolta is cutting up his own face, saying, like, you'll always see my face in the mirror, and he's kind of taking the last... uh, He's taking the last laugh, almost. And you've got the spear gun. And I really love that he jams his hand into the bands of the spear gun. I think that's a really cool moment. It's 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 like the version of jamming your thumb in the hammer of a gun. But it's such an unusual weapon that it's kind of really cool. And also, it's been used as a melee weapon before, so it's already drawn blood. It's a really fun and cool moment. But, um, in particular, though, the deception is over at that point. Yeah. Um, everyone up. knows... The game is up. And I think by denying a final gunfight,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you kind of just the entire sequence feels kind of pointless. It does. And in particular, when they crash the boat. Yep. Uh
0: yep. <laughs>
1: they both go flying through the air and it's got that, you know, late nineties slow mo going on. <laughs> so and they're flying through the air, and I think that's kind of that's where I had some thoughts about John Wu and bodies flo- flying through the air mm. because they're flying through the air but there's no point to it. They're both inelegant and just being flung. They're not flying of their own power of volition. So you get this kind of... If you accept the John Wu metaphor of you know flying as power and grace, then like this is a moment where both men are broken and I, I can accept that, and I think that's an interesting read, except that's not kind of where the fight ends up going. <laughs> yep. And so, it just feels like the entire motorboat exercise is kind of pointless. And also, it's where I feel they kind of throw naturalism out the window a little bit, because that's around the point in the gun... That's around the point... <laughs> that's <laughs> around the point in the film where yeah. pistols just start firing on full automatic. Oh, yeah. You notice that? Yep, yep. It's like, here's a Beretta. <laughs> what the hell is going on here? <laughs> um, And also, this movie, I think, was way too long. Like, Far too I, long. I, I, I didn't know that this movie was almost two and a half hours long.
0: It makes me and wonder, because oh, we watched this on Netflix. Did you watch this on Netflix?
1: I, it was not on my Netflix. I okay. didn't get the DVD.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, because it makes me wonder, was there another cut of this movie that I'm was I'm sure there was shorter. a cut yeah cable cut would make sense but i was wondering if there was something else that had been like not just well cut for time to a certain extent yeah i guess that would be the cable version
1: yeah um another sequence i actually want to praise also is the faceless sequence
0: <gasps> yes uh
1: because yes. a couple things one when he gets up and he's completely bandaged. Oh, that That's yes. a, such a terrifying moment. It's like, at that moment, he becomes a movie monster. He becomes a
0: revenant. I loved that. That was awesome. More of that, yeah, please. The sound,
1: the sound design there was great. But the other thing also is, this is something that I remember. Yeah. And this is, I, I think this is a testament to how well constructed this particular sequence is. Because mm. when he brings the doctor in... Uh, and he confronts him without having his face on, I remember the shot of seeing his face reflected in the glass, and I remember it being more like a skull and being more detailed. In The way it lived in my mind yeah. was completely superior to the actual practical effects they ended up using. Yep. And the, the way that it's framed, the way that they build the sequence around that moment is so powerful as to imply the terror of it that it's only, that the way I remember it is so much more vivid than what they actually did. And so it's this kind of clever hiding of the effect because if they had just had him sitting there with his face all dressed up, we wouldn't be nearly as scared. But he, instead he has this kind of terror and this aura of command that along with that kind of revenant sequence of awakening from the dead and the brief allusion to a skull face that we do get,
0: I think this is it's his real bit. face. I like yep. if we're if we want to talk about this, like the the metaphor of the face is used a couple times. Like you're two-faced. Take you're wearing the wrong face. All that stuff. Th- I think this is Castor's real face. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I think that we were watching this movie in the exact same way, the specific sequence, because I too remembered his face being a little bit more Red Skull and a lot less um whatever this was it was his face was puffy and swollen in the shot and this is a shot that's that we see his face through the doctor's glasses and he does very much look monstrous almost in a kind of frankenstein's monster sense in that it's sort of bloated and
1: corpsey i mean it Man. it's a, also a practical limitation because yeah to, to create the prosthetics to do a proper like inwardly done face would have been quite extensive and w- basically would have necessitated, I think from a filmmaking and budgetary justification standpoint that you would have had to hold a couple shots on it and it would fall apart and it would look much more fake. And so instead, because the makeup is additive, you cannot show the recession right. at the point where these face lines go in. So I think it's just it, 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 it's it's a compromise, and I think it shows that it is a compromise, but it's framed well enough that if you're not actually looking at the makeup itself, it, it the scene itself actually sells it, not the Totally. Prop.
0: Oh, totally. The actors definitely sell it very well, too.
1: Yeah. The other fun thing is uh, I really like how um, they did the blood, where he touches his face and he comes away with this kind of like really congealed, nasty oh, blood. yeah. And when he's clutching at the Venetian blinds, how it kind of sprays around that. But also, I like what you're saying that this is his real face because this is kind of really who he is as a character yeah. at his core. Oh, yeah. uh, is he is a he is a criminal, he is a pill swallowing monster, and he is a domineering force. He is, a, you know, the kind of alpha male, if you want, of his criminal underworld, and he's murderous. He's scary. Because that's a line I don't really remember is, I borrowed some of your painkillers here. They're great stuff, you know? And to affect the mantle of Caster Troy, Sean Archer has to take, I think it's mescaline? Maybe? I uh, don't quite remember. Some, he, he takes, uh, Dietrich offers him some drug and he's just like, yeah, I'll take it. Fuck it. You know, this is part of the guys. So to ha- not have a face and to assert and domineer is in his nature and without a face it kind of just it comes full circle and shows it as a raw and central tenant of his character
0: yeah it almost it's his face becomes as essential to him as freddy krueger's face is to him and as the concealment of jason Voorhees' face is to him so i I think that it really is building on that mythos of the monstrous face
1: I will also say that Sean Archer is a bad dad because his signature gesture that his wife recognizes from is, like, this affectionate face touch. And it's just really weird. It's not, like, stroking the cheek or anything. It's just running your hand down someone's (laughs) face.
0: (laughs) Which is the worst.
1: Yeah, no, because, like, in Thai culture, touching the head in general was taboo. Yeah. You know, I I like head pats and stuff. It's very sweet. But, like, a face touch like that, that's something, like, I would do with my husband just to be, like, fucking weird about it and playful. Like as As an everyday gesture for what's supposed to be this very boilerplate boring family, it's kind of creepy, uh
0: yeah, no, it's really really
1: weird. I think it's also extra creepy that he keeps doing it after all this trauma involving face swapping
0: uh, uh. yeah there's right? some, yeah, ah, uh, there's something really weird about that. And I, I, I don't quite know what it is. You're right, though, that it it's this kind of strange, intimate violation if it's done by a stranger. But even if it's done by somebody that you know very well, it has to be done in a certain way and in certain contexts or else it also becomes a violation. So, I mean, there's there's stuff here that the director is playing with about like the face is a site of intimacy and all that stuff. So I get it. But yeah, you're right. That's creepy.
1: Yeah, and it's also, it's supposed to be this sign of recognizable intimacy, but it's shown at the beginning of the film that he has no intimacy with his family. It's just weird.
0: Yeah. That, I guess then it becomes a kind of act of possession.
1: Like I said, Sh- Sean Archer is a bad dad. Yeah. <laughs> he also, it, is it just me or has he not consulted his wife about adopting the child of a criminal?
0: He doesn't seem to consult her for very much, unless he's complaining and... about work. So,
1: <laughs> well, no, no, but like he, he, like he's like, hey, Jamie, show him to his new room, and then he looks up at her and he kind of mouths like, this is this okay or something like that. Oh yeah, and she's like, yeah, yeah. She knows. Like, I, I, feel like she was not consulted on that at all, and like, Probably this not. is kind of a new because tro- like the, um, the new kid. Uh, it's not Andy, is it? Oh, I don't remember what it's, his name is at all.
0: It
1: starts with an A. Yeah, uh, I, I think it might be Andy. But it's like, hey, th- here's this kid who del- is deliberately cast to resemble uh, your to resemble your dead brother slash son uh, <laughs> at the similar age that your brother slash son was when he was murdered, ah. and also he is the biological son of the man who stole my face. Try. Uh, And infiltrated your lives, and also who killed your like.
0: Speaking of violations, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yup. And like, yeah. By the way, just take him up, and it's implicitly, yeah, take him up to your dead brother's room, who that hasn't been touched or altered since his death six years ago. What the fuck is wrong (laughs) with you? Oh my god.
0: Ah, this movie. This is one of those movies that I don't know that people tend to talk about the plot in this way, like looking at it deeply or taking the plot seriously. Because when you do, this becomes a really strange movie, like almost verging on a horror film, I would say. Uh... Like I said, this movie
1: is a lot of fun. It is. But it it mainly comes from character, charisma, and performance whereas the script supporting those performances is very weak. Let's see who wrote this actually. Mike Werb and Michael Cullery. Uh let's see. Known for Face Off the Mask, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, Unnatural History, known for Face Off, Tomb Raider, Unnatural History, Tarzan. Uh, yeah.
0: Oh man. I'm not
1: I'm not, I'm not seeing an A plus. I'm not seeing a <laughs> fucking star writing cast on this.
0: I also see uh Curious George. And then I see Darkman 3, Die, Darkman, Die.
1: Okay, um, first of all, I don't think you can make a Darkman sequel. I, I, I love the original Darkman. Sam Raimi knocked it out of the park with that one. Yeah. But also, I just want to say how much I love that title, Die, Darkman, Die. Uh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do we have anything else we want to say about fucking Face-Off? Besides the fact that it's going to mess with our... Naming URL schema.
0: So uh, one last thought. I think we've been talking about this movie in two different ways. One has been about content and the other has been about the form in the movie, um, the way that the cinematography works, all that stuff. Formally, this movie is really pretty important. It influences a lot of action movies that come down the pipeline, both from the 90s and arguably up until this moment. I think you can see resonances of John Wu's work in um, John Wick and some of the stuff that's come out in the past two years. If we're talking about content, um, the content of this film has been kind of a struggle for us to talk about, in particular because the film doesn't seem so interested in its own content at times. So um, this movie, I think, gives us a kind of window into um, how people are talking about women and their bodies and sexuality during the late 90s. I think it's also very indicative of The kinds of things that are happening in policing culture and also ideas about terrorism too. What is a domestic terrorist? That's something that comes up during this period. So um, as a a film viewer, if you were going to watch this, you could watch it for the problematics. I think you could watch it for the portrayal of police. Or I think you could watch it for um, its influences down the road. So there are certainly reasons for you to take a look. And that's
1: okay. Look, if you want to see Nicolas Cage have a mental breakdown, this is a great film for it.
0: A hundred percent. And definitely not National Treasure.
1: Actually, what I think is actually kind of interesting, and I've thought of this just seeing some of the screenshots on the IMDb page, is this is also kind of an interesting, I do think there's some, I think, well, first of all, I think John Woo's influence on the Matrix trilogy is very clear. But in particular, though, um, the face-off between Archer and Troy. Mm -hmm at the beginning of the film in the airport, is actually, I think, more informative of the Matrix than we might give credit for. Because in particular, you have the bullet counting and the face-off there. It's like, you've got one bullet left. So do you. I see you know your guns. Tell me that doesn't mirror. You're out. So are you. Yeah. And that's just like a little note. So um, yeah, this is a film I love, but is... Honestly, pretty problematic, and honestly, probably not as good as I think it is, but it's a lot of fun, and yeah, that's kind of it. Like, it's it's weird. This movie is a lot weirder than I remembered. All right, anyways, this has been the movie morgue. I've been your host, Sylvie Armory. You guys can follow me on Twitter at Double Doc MD.
0: And I've been your co-host, Annie Neller, as always, and you all can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Lights and Music. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of The Movie Morgue. But we did just want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and also for sharing us with your friends. We don't really have a marketing budget here at The Movie Morgue, so word of mouth is kind of our bread and butter. If you have any friends who uh, don't know about us, but really like to talk about movies, please feel free to share our Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and iTunes profiles with them. Because we'd love to have more people to talk to and more people to hear from. As usual, our intro music was Trouble by Ipso Factopus, and you all can find the link to their Bandcamp in our show notes.
1: Uh, thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next weekend. Buh-bye. Bye-bye.